Case file number 6.10. How to torture and acronym. MITRE. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. Y- you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Emer. Hmm. You know the MITRE Corporation? Yep. How do you think it got its name? I don't know because I don't know actually what the acronym stands for. Or if it is even like an acronym. Well, it's not an acronym. I can tell you that. Um, so the word MITRE, when I think about it, and I'm not thinking about the corporation. I think about miter joints for like wood or metal frames. How to yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Cut. Mm-hmm. And I also think about the hat Pope or Cardinals wear, the the, the bishop hat. That, uh, is it a, oh, yeah, that is a miter. Yeah, okay. That's a miter. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I had forgotten that. And when I was looking for this stuff, I, w- I, uh, I was Googling for, or I was looking on Wikipedia for miter. Because if you don't, check wikipedia you're not starting with the first thing that everybody looks at so yeah um, exactly <laughs> and the first thing that came up was not miter corporation but the miter that the pope wears <laughs> i think i I knew that because of playing like final fantasy games i think it's like one inventory piece excellent <laughs> so the story was that some people thought it meant massachusetts institute of technology research and engineering okay yeah i, I can kind of say that yeah turns out doesn't mean any of those things. It was a creation by James uh, McCormick. It was an early board member who wanted a name that meant something, but uh, meant nothing and sounded evocative. Okay, yeah. And he missed because it meant something. (laughs) But uh, it was pretty funny. So MITRE was started in Bedford, Massachusetts in 1958, very early Cold War. It was built by the Air Force as a not-for-profit to bring in academia and eventually uh, the corporate world into solving problems that the military was concentrating on. Mm. They've done a bunch of this stuff. It's still a not-for-profit today, uh, and they've consulted on a bunch of stuff. Uh, One of their big early things was they consulted and helped build the unified air traffic control system that the FAA uses back in like the, the... the early 60s mm-hmm. the AWAC system stealth craft technology they were they did some of the development of the gps system mm. so it's a think tank where people apply academic type methodologies to military problems they are all cleared 
it's a whole thing. It's an interesting piece in the Venn diagram of, of the uh, government public private world that I don't think is anything is quite like it. As some of the things that they they've done, they actually have done a fair bit of the, a fair bit of work for um, the internet and cybersecurity over time. Hmm. Um, they're an early participant in the ARPANET. They were actually the very first .org domain registration. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. I wrote that. And I was just like, "Well, that'll tie everything together." <laughs> um, they wrote up. And may not come to us uh, as a su- surprise to any of the old hands or the folks who have to check CVs uh, relatively often. But the common vulnerabilities and exo- exposure system, that whole system was developed and maintained by MITRE. Hmm. It does a lot of work for NIST. I actually didn't look this up, but I know that the NVD system, which is kind of the canonical register now, Right. Is run out of NIST, but I don't know if it's run by MITRE. I think it was just, a, it was a little bit of an ownership change to not have a private entity as the canonical registrar for that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. They also developed the sticks and taxi system for distributing indicator information. Hmm. Now, I, I don't know if you've, have you worked with it with sticks and taxi at all? Do you even know what I'm talking about there? Nope. Okay. Um, I actually didn't bring the, the acronym down, but Styx is an XML format that allows indicators to be shared along with all of their associated, all the associated notes and information. Okay. Um, it's a it's a specific format. There were now I think at Styx two point one. There was this whole thing about some incompatibilities between two o and two one and stuff, but it's supposed to be the canonical way of sharing indicator information hmm. um some vendors i've talked to don't love it uh thinks that they've met they've missed some fields and kind of try and have you use their apis and json systems but it's the prescribed way of doing it and the server that's built to share that stuff and help you keep up to date and the whole api interaction is the is taxi oh, okay taxi is the server sticks is the format do they do they charge uh, for access to the api no, they don't charge. No, it, but this is like the standard format. If you have, uh, if you are getting indicators from somebody, or you are building an indicator system, you would either ingest from somebody else's taxi server, or you give stuff out via the taxi server. I meant, I meant that more as a uh, more as a timely dig um, and joke towards Twitter. I don't know if you saw that Elon Musk is uh, charging for API access now. No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, it's uh, twenty five thousand dollars per like ten thousand requests to the API or something like that. Or maybe it's twenty five hundred dollars. That's still quite a lot. Yeah, actually, as a digression, it's possible, and I didn't realize this until just recently, that the most damage that he's going to do to the world is going to be through OpenAI and not of any of the other things he's done. Really? Yeah. I'm just saying, like, he's the open AI guy, and I'm like, open AI is <laughs> yeah, making us deal with a lot of things we didn't think we'd have to think about. <laughs> also, the reason why programmatic distribution of indicators is important, sticks is important, is really, I mean, we talk about the the around 2010, 2012, 2013. We really started to go from 
the graffiti era to the for-profit era. Hmm. And people were, were trying to monetize things. There was a lot of, there was a lot more diversity in attack tactic tactics. There were larger, more developed organizations doing that stuff. That's where the whole APT stuff started. Right. And we in the cyber defense world really became more and more reliant on intelligence and indicators of compromise. Hmm. It became less about, can we detect this particular buffer overflow being able to detect a specific, the attack on the vulnerability and a lot more about being able to identify the actual attacker and malicious um, payload. Mm -hmm. And while that's in a lot of ways more effective, or at least has a lower false positive rate and, and, and gives you a better lens into whether or not you're affected, it does mean that you're much more tied to an information stream. Right. This is really where tools like ClamAV and Snort and even Bro became less useful than they once were. I still, especially Bro and Snort, I still really think that there's a place for them because they still give you a lot of detective capability. Mm. But just because you can get the data doesn't mean you can identify things necessarily. Right. The indicators is the intelligence stream. And more and more, having a source for the intelligence and being able to incorporate it into your defense mechanisms is how we shorten the lifespan of viable attacks and malware. Mm -hmm. This also means, to a non-trivial degree, the effectiveness of just being an open source analyst, where you just know that you know the open source tools, has less and less value because it's all about using being able to use the indicators. And then, so the indicators have to attach to how they're being used. That's the TTP algorithm you hear everybody talking about, tools, techniques, and procedures. And in ATT uh, CK, the, the attack framework, the CK there is for common knowledge, which essentially is common techniques and procedures that are used by lots of different organizations. Okay. So it's not just, hey, we've identified that this particular actor does these things. It's that several actors are using a similar approach, even if it's not exactly the same, but we can tie them together and let your analyst and incident response team know that these are the kinds of things that they're going to go after once you've caught them doing this. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's important that we have a framework that can communicate that and doesn't require expert analysis to be able to quickly discern what the other possibilities of, of detection are. It's, okay, these are the techniques. I don't need to have a tier three person break it down for all of my analysts. This is what you need to look for. They can start without having that middle person, that, that uh, middle analysis being done. Right. So that idea creating a framework and making every and and tying everything together into a standard nomenclature methodology started with the cyber kill chain developed by Lockheed Martin in, in 2011. Hmm. They have phase one reconnaissance, assess your target phase two weaponization, which was developing the exploit phase three delivery, get it in there, fish it, drop USB drives in, in, in their parking lot, whatever exploitation, Get your initial foothold installation 
move laterally, command and control, get control of it, and then actions on objective. Actually do what you tried to do, why you got in there in the first place. Right, right, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that as a framework, except that it's very, first of all, it was very focused on APT-type operations. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at a lot of the advice around it, it was very enterprise perimeter focused. Mm. And I would also say, especially digging in a little bit to the ATT, uh, the attack framework stuff, that phase one and phase two, they needs to be a lot more granular. There's a lot more going on there than the cyber kill chain really give you gives you focus into. And we'll get a little bit into that as we go through the kill chain stuff. So then 2015, in response to the cyber kill chain, MITRE developed the attack, adversarial tactics, techniques, and common knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, this is attack.mitre.org. It'll the link will be in the show notes. The details, 14 tactic areas. So I'm going to go through this bit by bit. There's a lot here. <laughs> um, so reconnaissance is open and closed source reconnaissance. We've actually seen real world actors doing both, where you'll have spy type intelligence gathering by some APT type actors. Mm hmm to open source pulling your who is records your dns stuff googling the organization but then you know looking on reddit looking on stack overflow and those kinds of places on linkedin find, to like kind of scour some people yeah find the admins mm -hmm. who are they and we do know that though that there have been instances where they have been either spearfished or directly approach to be an attempt to actually compromise people. I know in the past there have been incidents where like an admin for such and such corporation has forgotten to sanitize what they're posting a question for on Reddit. So you can even yeah. gleam information on that. Exactly. So you can get intelligence about the issues that they were going through, or at least understand what software they were being used. Or just knowing the admins gives you more information than you had. Yeah. And start mapping out like personnel diagrams and stuff like that. But you also have open source stuff related to things like API keys in GitHub's mm -hmm. and credential stuff that might be in things like public um, uh, AMIs in AWS. I went to a black to a DefCon presentation where a guy would just walked public AMIs and there was like credential information in them and stuff. And I totally see how it could happen. Somebody's like, hey, I need to, I want to work on this from home. I'm going to make it public. Right, yeah. And that way I can work on it on my home computer. How bad could it be? Who's looking for it? Well, apparently that guy. That guy. <laughs> that, that guy. <laughs> um, and if he's looking for it, don't assume nobody else is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially after he gave the talk. <laughs> so the reconnaissance phase especially nowadays with the cloud world can be more extensive than the stuff that, that the cyber kill chain looked at. But I think the real missed thing in the cyber kill chain is resource development, right? Building out your infrastructure. If you're going to use dynamic domain generation, you need to be able to have those domains and be able to register and host those domains. Um, you need to be able to host 
you're off by one phishing domains. You need to be able to have your command and control servers in places that are going to be both reliable and not attributable to you. True. Yeah. Maybe you maybe you're going to employ somebody else's botnet. And different organizations use different tactics. And being able to attribute a particular attack to an organization can tell you based on their previous behavior, what kind of infrastructure they're likely to have. Mm -hmm. So like, this is actually kind of huge over just detecting a bad guy. Right, right, yeah. On the initial access side, there's basic drive-by stuff, spear phishing, hardware additions, which is supply chain compromise. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the reconnaissance side, there is like supply chain stuff. I mean, that's how they got target, right? Through credentials, through an HVAC vendor. So the initial access can come a lot of different ways. There's a lot of stuff that we're concentrated on, phishing, spear phishing, compromises of publicly accessible websites. I might've mentioned this in a previous episode, but there was a really interesting thing um, I hadn't seen before, but um, before I detected somebody trying to do this, but it was pretty interesting. So there was this thing called China Chopper. Okay. And what they did was they put their malware in a web feature. I didn't, I never was able to track down what like library or add-on it was using, Mm -hmm. but it did what it said on the tin and added some functionality to allow an external attacker to run commands. Okay. So if you downloaded this and you installed it on your public facing web server, well, they've got you compromised, but now they have to find you. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they had a botnet sending out requests, doing drive-by exploitation to try and find any web server that responded the correct way to the add-on that they put on their website. Uh, okay. So as a defense person, when I was seeing a lot of weird PHP things that were trying to execute, usually it was execute a particular MD5 hash and then die. So that was all over the internet because all they're doing is trolling for things that they've already exploited. Right. Yeah. That was an interesting thing. I mean, again, it's not an indicator that your stuff is necessarily exploited, but it's definitely bad traffic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you got the execution phase. Deploying software tools, actually deploying uh, containers, serverless execution within the environment that can be ephemeral and hard to track down, compromising Kubernetes, being able to to actually do the container deployment. Right, right. Um, An oldie but goodie, putting a scheduled task in place. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've had to do any of this kind of stuff in any kind of forensic stuff, but uh, WMI, Windows Management Instrumentation, that's a place that's easy to forget to look at, but very important. That's a low use channel that that attackers will use and is pretty powerful. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. Like I, I used it, you know, just from the admin side of we were paying way too much for like a password reset tool um, on one of my missions. And I was like, you can just do this with WMI. Like I can change local passwords and admin passwords and everything. Like, so I wrote up a script, you know, that did it. Yeah. And like, that's great from an admin perspective. You can totally see why it's there, but you can also see why an attacker would use it. Exactly. Yep. And then we talk about persistence. 
And persistence can be a tricky thing because there's persistence and then there's not leaving any traces. Mm -hmm. You will see a lot of things talking about uh, one technique that a penetration, the penetration testers that um, HD Moore, I think, was talking about. This is this is one of the guys that developed um, the framework everybody uses to build their attacks when um, using Kali or whatever. Um, Metasploit? Yes, Metasploit. He was one of the writers in Metasploit. But uh, he was saying one of the things that he liked to do to maintain persistence was downgrade, remove patches from certain services so that he could just compromise them later without leaving a back door. Mm, okay. Yeah. So it's like, I don't have an extra service running or any extra code there. All the code looks right. It just looks like somebody forgot to patch it. Yeah, true. So there's a uh, boot and in, uh, initialization script, browser extensions. Actually, browser extensions are quite dangerous. Yes. Um, modifying system process, adding stuff. In fact, this is kind of an old school thing. Adding uh, compromised binaries. A uh, really popular thing in old school Unix hackery was to put in compromised binaries for so, for some of the highly used tools. Right, right. That is an old technique that's been around for a long time. Uh, one of the new areas that we're seeing a lot. Um, JFrog is a vendor, and I don't have any relationship with them, although I've, I've, I've done a review of their product. But they have done their blog has gotten has has several articles on a supply chain attack where, where uh, attackers put compromises into Python libraries or um, or JavaScript libraries uh, available via um, PyPy or, um, or NPM. Oh, really? Yeah. About a year or so ago, people had proof of concepted it on an academic level, but it's been a real, real world bad stuff has happened with it at this point. Interesting. Okay. Both internal and external libraries can be compromised that way to maintain persistence. Yeah, I mean that's always an issue that we run into is, you know, some people that write software and just import just a crap ton of libraries that don't even need and never clean it up later on. It's like, like when was the last time these upda were updated? Do you even need these anymore? Like, yeah. Well, also like I don't know. We talked. Well, I know we talked about it offline, but there was a big story where a developer took down a library and oh, yeah. broke a whole bunch of things. And it turns out it was a very simple job piece of JavaScript that just, I think, did a life, right or left justify of text. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or something like that. And it was one of those things where it's like, do you need to import a library for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I'll say on the flip side, I am a crap web developer. Um, <laughs> I wrote the website that the podcast is served on from scratch and since doing that and having to kind of relearn how to write web pages from the 90s which is probably the last time i ever i studied it <laughs> there's a lot that's changed and doing a little bit more since getting the website up and running i can really see why you'd rely on one of the very many frameworks that are out there. There's a lot of things that I had to figure out. There's a lot of functionality that I'll have to put a lot of elbow grease into if I want to add it to the page, if I want if I want it and want to keep doing it from scratch like I did. So I can see the the appeal, but it can come to bite you and it's really tricky. Like, oh, like I said, I, very recently, the reason I was reading up on JFrog was because I was worried about that and how we were 
of how containers are being planned to be implemented at one of my customer sites. And it's like, okay, well, this is the new threat on the horizon. Whatever solution you're doing, does it account for this? Right, um, right. And that kind of control as like your containers are being built, for instance, in your in like your whole development pipeline, if you're not maintaining the sanitization of those libraries, somebody will just win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. On everything. Anyway, so and there's exploitation for privilege escalation, which mm -hmm. is abusing um, services for abusing privilege granting mechanisms. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Process injection adding stuff to scheduled jobs by higher privileged users, all that kind of fun. This allows thing allows folks to move laterally and be able to like expand their so the execution persistence privilege escalation is is multiple slices of that whole like exploitation installation side in the cyber kill chain. You have Defense evasion, registry modification, staying memory resident, debugger evasion stuff, things that will actually cause uh, various sandboxing mechanisms to crash. Right, yeah. Uh, there's also was pretty common for a while for mid to higher um, sophistication systems to basically wait 10, 20, 30 minutes, maybe even a full, maybe even multiple hours before running any bad stuff to defeat sand, automatic sandboxing mechanisms. Yeah. Hmm. So we have credential access, grabbing credentials from memory, grabbing local password databases and doing offline cracking of that stuff. Key logging. The one most, the most interesting thing in here is a thing that we haven't talked about, but, but uh, has been a thing that we've talked about at work is uh two-factor multi-factor authentication interception mm, okay smishing or social engineering to get people's um multi-factor authentication codes actually what was it recently where they uh they basically like pestered the guy uh yeah. so much mm -hmm. yeah and the smishing is phishing through sms I, I will admit that acronym got me the first time i was like what the <laughs> oh i see now <laughs> context thank you but it but like i'm five minutes late to the party right, right. <laughs> um network discovery stuff i mean there's a lot of network discovery stuff that's very common to your normal vulnerability i mean it, your normal vulnerability management planning mm -hmm. but in the cloud world that does change a fair bit you can walk the infrastructure and get exactly what's there right yeah it's a very different paradigm and um, not everybody internalizes what that really means. Right. Our current vulnerability processes in my main customer, that's kind of the push pull is how do we do discovery on our remaining internal network versus having the process to pull all that information directly out of the cloud and generate our scans based on that information because we know exactly what's there and when it's there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, no, we have two different processes because you have two different infrastructures. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So lateral movement, you can add a lot of complexity to stopping lateral movement by having complex network access control, things like that we like to call micro segmentation, essentially the things in an application can only talk to things in an application. Mm -hmm. You can't go 
to the places you're not supposed to go essentially by default. Right. A lot of networks aren't built that way. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's a lot of network discovery and lateral movement that's possible. That is what those specific things are good at defending you against. Those things have kind of a upside on the administration side in allowing you to like portably move stuff from infrastructure to infrastructure. But that's kind of a long duration. All of the work that you do up front, a lot of people don't see the payoff down the road. And they're like, why are we burning hours on this? Why did you make it this complicated? So there's also data collection. There's uh, man in the middling. If you compromise the certificates, you can now do man in the middle mm-hmm. operations. One of the really interesting ones here is audio capture. Having computers listen to people for, for actual data collection. Right, yeah. And well, we're seeing attackers being more and more sophisticated in the cloud. Um, and one of the things that that means is the ability to pull down all of your cloud information, including all of your email information. Mm-hmm. This is very likely what happened in some of the captures that happened uh, of the DNC in the 2016 election. Right. You have command and control. Command and control is a very tricky thing for adversaries nowadays because just having a weird web server out there in an organization that gets indicate a lot of good indicators or does gray listing techniques, which I've talked about before, mm-hmm. um, if it's not classified, don't let people go there. Right. It could be hard to keep a functional command and control system working. Hello, I just had an idea. What's up? Well, so you're in a cloud world, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens if you have another tenant in the same cloud environment? I can tell you based on the analysis I've done of the logs of both Azure and AWS that all of that cloud-to-cloud traffic happens within AWS's network. Oh, really? Like if you make an API call, it stays within their network. So you could do command and control that way as long as you were sneaky about it. Um, right. Hmm. What you'd have to do is very much make keep everything as a thing that happens to the cloud, not in the cloud, so that it's API calls within the cloud infrastructure. As soon as something in the cloud tries to make an interaction to the cloud, mm-hmm. you very likely would have to go out the internet gateway and then you're much more detectable. Right. Now, the thing in the middle there is interaction to a service endpoint. And I feel like that, what would happen if you have a service endpoint to S3, which is storage, and you have a workload running within that cloud environment, and you had it copy up a bunch of stuff or read a bunch of stuff from an S3 bucket in a different tenant environment, because you were able to compromise things enough where you've allowed that to happen. If it's going to the S3 endpoint that was already set up within the victim environment, would that cross? I think that that would probably stay within AWS, Mm. which would allow you to do things. And also, um, if you do it right, you could probably do some DNS obfuscation within an AWS, it's Route 53 resolver. Um, Mm. If you use their internal resolution service and you could uh, poison the cache within it, you could probably do command and control within that whole system and be very hard to detect. 
Interesting. This is just me spitballing a little bit on things that might be worth a little bit of work. But this goes into the very last part of the framework, which is exfiltration. Mm -hmm. How do you get data out? And again, if we have a good solid boundary where people aren't able to kind of go anywhere on the internet, exfiltration isn't so easy. But if you're able to access a different tenant environment within within the cloud and you never go out, well, you can exfiltrate that way and it's much harder to detect. Right. Honestly, as far as the cloud stuff, and this will be kind of the last thing I say, um, one of the problems right now in the cloud is the state of practice, the sophistication of of way too many people of like what the cloud logs say and how to monitor them is not anywhere near where it is in the on-prem world. We haven't as mad, had as much time to work on it. And the technique development just isn't there. Right, um, right. And we're working on it. I can tell you one of the things that I realized relatively recently was that in the Splunk environment that I deal with, somebody asked about how we would see weird access to S3. We have very strong guardrails, so we weren't really watching that, Right. figuring the preventative controls were going to do most of that job for us. Um, And that was maybe lazy thinking on our part, but the way you that you deal with that in Splunk is to put that in for normalize that put it into a data model and let the rules on that data model tell you when weird things are happening hmm. well if you're using the the tools on Splunk base it's not going into that data model really yeah the tool needs another generation of of sophistication just to put it in the right place to use Splunk as a tool correctly for that particular use case. And hmm. I'm not slamming anybody as much as I'm saying, we still have a lot of cracks to fill in. Right, right. We're, st- we're all still learning. <laughs> I put a lot of effort into learning a lot of this stuff and how these clouds work. And I still have nowhere near the comfort level I do in the on-prem. On the on-prem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I know that that was a, that, that was a, a whole bunch of me monologuing, actually, <laughs> which I try and do less often since I noticed I was doing somewhere in season three. I'm slow sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the miter stuff is really interesting because I haven't dealt with much of the miter stuff um, until recently when I started playing around with Woza, which, you know, will point you to certain logs matching certain miter frameworks um, and correlating that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I glanced at miter, I think a few times, but there was never any real need or reason to. Well, that's actually a really good point because I hadn't put a lot of work into this mm-hmm. until pretty recently because what made it useful is that not just one, but multiple vendors of the various detection technologies that, that I'm using started providing the MITRE attack information. If you're only getting it from one, or if it's not directly associated with either your indicators or your tools, it's hard to make a lot of use of. Yeah, 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 exactly. But once we're at the point where your network anomaly system, your your endpoint detection and response, your network IDS, maybe your your um your CASB, your your, your cloud uh, access system, are all providing you with the MITRE technique information. Now you can start to correlate things together. You can say this is weird activity that is associated with this particular TA, 
what else is associated, what attackers are associated with it. You can start narrowing it down. Um, and you could start from a SOC point of view saying, part of your investigation is to look for this. Mm-hmm. If it's only if they're not seeing it very often, it's only a helps a little sometimes. It's really the penetration in the market that I think makes is is making this a lot more worth paying attention to than it was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And maybe I'm just late to the party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for the segue. That was that was a point. I was like, I skipped over this in my outline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, the the I guess the last thing I'm going to say is that in the attack.miter.org site, there are also a lot of group and campaign information, which frankly, when we've talked, the few times we've talked about the APT, it's one of the first places I start from before I start building out mm-hmm. um, the, the rest of the behavior, especially if we don't get to it, um, that as a place to kind of do some background of what previous attackers have done is is a, that's one of the best places to start I've found. Like, yeah, yeah. You don't really get that kind of perspective anywhere else, except for possibly this podcast. Aha. <laughs> Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.